Enough said. Mm. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis. As we continue to preach through the book of Genesis, uh, we find ourselves in the second half of Genesis chapter 4 today. Uh, last week, our special guest speaker, Cain, told us his story. And um, today we get to see what happened to him and his family after he left the presence of God. From Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And today we're going to talk about worldliness and worship. Worldliness and worship. From Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Genesis 4, verse 17. This is after Cain has left the presence of the Lord. Verse 17 says that Cain knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad. And Erad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah, this is the second wife, also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Laamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's. Is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. And at that time... People begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you as a in weakness. I come to you as a sinner preaching to sinners. Father, I desperately need the power of your Holy Spirit to speak through your word and to apply your word to our hearts today. And Father, your word is sharper than any two edged sword. Father, I ask that you'd help me to speak with grace today and let your word act as a scalpel to precisely cut us where we need to be cut, not to injure, but to heal. Father, let the gospel bring healing today. Convict us of sin, convict us of judgment and the righteousness to come and conform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Last week we saw the destructive path that Cain took as he rebelled against God. He had murdered his brother and he had left the land of blessing in angry defiance of God. And now the question we ask today is what happened to him? 
What happened to Cain as he left Eden and went to the land of Nod, the land of wandering, as he was placed under a curse? Well, the answer might surprise you of what happened to him and his family. They prospered. They prospered. In God's kindness and in his patience with an unbelieving world, God allowed the world to continue to prosper with the advancement of culture and the development of cities and music and weapons and agriculture and the beginning of civilization itself. And despite being separated from God and being under the curse, Cain's life enhanced. His life was enhanced through cultural refinement and the development of civilization. But there's a big problem. As civilization advances, it is done without reference to God. This is the problem with the descendants of Cain. This passage is a tale of two roads. A broad way that leads to destruction and a narrow way that leads to life. It's the tale of two families. The family of Cain and the family of God through the righteous line of Seth. And while Seth's line would certainly use culture to the glory of God, this is what Israel would do. They would use culture as a way of showing the glory of God to the nations. Culture and their love for culture was not the dominant theme of their life. They became a people known for the worship of God. So what this text today presents to us are two paths, two roads, two very different ways to live. And I would submit that it is not possible for you to walk both roads at the same time. It's not possible to authentically live for the world and to live for God at the same time. Time. There is a way of worldliness and there is a way of worship. There's a little small book that a pastor that I respect, Pastor C.J. Mahaney, just wrote a small book called Worldliness. And he focuses on 1 John chapter 2, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And C.J. Mahaney makes an amazing statement that we need to hear this morning. He says the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals today is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Our biggest problem in America is not the world persecuting us, but the world seducing us to live like the world. So what does it mean? What is what is this world that we talk about? The world is what Christians are forbidden to love. Do not love the things of the world. Do not love the world. The world is this organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from God. That's what the world is. It is a system, a civilization that lives its life apart from God in hostility to God. So the question this morning is, how do you know where you stand? How can you know whether you're living in the way of worldliness or the way of worship or the way of love for God? This is the test that C.J. Mahaney gives. I want you to imagine that we took a blind test. And my task this morning is to identify who the genuine followers of Jesus are. And the choice is between an unregenerate, unbeliever, lost person and the Christian. 
And so what I do is I take two reports, a detailed report of your life and the life of an unbeliever. And the report details all of your conversations, your Internet activity, your manner of dress, your Spotify playlists, your television habits, your Netflix habits, your hobbies, your leisure time, your financial transactions, your thoughts, your passions and your dreams. And we put them all on a report. Here's the question. If we were to put your report up to the up next to an unbeliever's report, would we be able to tell the difference? Could we tell you apart? Could we discern a difference between you and your unconverted neighbor, co-worker, classmate, or friend? Or have the lines between the Christian life and worldly conduct in your life become so indistinguishable that there's really no difference at all? This is a hard question to ask. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We have this propensity to to be seduced by the things of this world. So what is worldliness? The problem we get into is when we, we start classifying worldliness as just outward behavior. Worldliness is not ultimately about what we do. Worldliness starts from within. The real location of worldliness is internal it's in our hearts so what is worldliness cj mahaney says worldliness is loving the values and the pursuits of the world that stand opposed to god more specifically worldliness is to gratify and exalt yourself to the exclusion of god so this is where it gets a little more personal he says if you are more excited about the release of a new movie or a new video game more than about serving in the local church, if you are more impressed by Hollywood stars or professional athletes, regardless of their lack of integrity or morality, then you have been seduced by this fallen world. We are, as Al Mohler says, entertaining ourselves to death. And so what this passage is, is it clearly divides into two sections, two separate groups of people, the worldly and the righteous. And the point of this sermon is summed up like this. In the midst of an affluent and self-indulgent society that we live in in America, the righteous must preserve the knowledge of the Lord. This is what the righteous line of Seth does. They preserve God's name and they proclaim his name in the midst of a culture that denies the very presence of God. So let's, this is how the passage is set up. This is how the sermon is set up. Two points, the worldly and the righteous. So what do we see about the world? In verses 17 to 24, we have a description of the world. And this is the big summary. That the world prides itself in cultural advancements. The world prides itself in cultural advancements. Look at verse 17 where we start. We see that Cain knew his wife. And she bore and she conceived and bore a son, Enoch. And Cain built a city and named the city after his son, Enoch. Now, the first thing we see is that Cain has a wife. I'm not here to tell you where she came from. The implication is that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. As we read later in Genesis, people want to know where did Cain's wife come from? Probably from Adam and Eve, where all the rest of us came from. And so Cain probably married his sister. That's not the point of this passage. The point is, is that Cain has a son, names him Enoch, and then builds a city in his honor. 
And the first thing we see here about worldly people is that the, the city becomes the world's lasting monument. Cain is trying to find some way to be remembered by. This is a society that describes itself away from God. Cain had been banished from the presence of God. He had been cursed to wander the earth and scrounge for food because the earth would no longer yield its strength to him. And so what does this fugitive do? They attempt to overcome the curse and the effects of the curse through ingenuity and enterprise. Their prosperity is great. He builds a city, but it is an empty prosperity apart from God. This is why Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so when Cain builds a city, this seems to be an act of defiance against God. God told Cain, you will wander the earth for the rest of your life. And what does Cain do? He settles down and builds a city. He attempts to retain the name of his son in the memory of his descendants by building a city in honor of Enoch. This life is the only life that the ungodly have to live for. And so Cain vainly tries to preserve his life and his reputation and his honor by building a city and naming it after his son. This is what Psalm 49 actually talks about. You can read this later, but there's there's three verses in Psalm 49, verses 10 through 12, that talks about the vanity of the wicked. Listen to this. It says, for the wicked sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. What we find is that even even the wealthy die. And your wealth cannot prevent death. You eat, the wealthy will die just like the beast of the field. They're no different. This is why Larry King, back in 2011, true story, you can find this on, on the internet. Larry King said in 2011 when he dies, he said, I want to be cryogenically frozen on the hopes that they will find whatever I died of and they'll bring me back. Larry King is so afraid of death and he doesn't believe in an afterlife that he says maybe science can save me so that when I die, just freeze my body so that later when scientists figure out what I died from, then they can bring me back. And Larry King admits that he has not taken the leap of faith to believe in an afterlife. And someone asked him about his obsession with his own mortality. And this is what Larry King said. He said, my biggest fear is death. Because I don't think I'm going anywhere. The only life he has to live for is this life now. And so Cain, by building a city in honor of his son, was his vain attempt to preserve his own name. And yet we as Christians can get so caught up in this life that we forget that our citizenship is not of this world. We're citizens of another world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers and exiles. So that Hebrews 11 says that we desire a better country, a heavenly one. So therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he has prepared for us a city. This is the problem of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. They're building a city in their honor to preserve their name. 
This is all that the ungodly have is to try to preserve their name in this life. The second thing in verses 18 to 22 is we see that the advances of culture bring enjoyment and they bring convenience. This is actually part of God's common grace. He allows Cain's line to prosper. So we're introduced here to Cain's descendants. And these descendants become the pioneers of technological and cultural advancement. Like tent making and livestock development and music and weapons and food production and livestock. And what we see is this brings great joy to these families. You can see it in the names of Lamech's children. Look at verse 20. Uh, Lamech has two wives and one of the sons, verse 20, is named Jabal. He's the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name, Jubal, who's the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. These guys know how to party, right? And he names his sons in a word where Israel would get their word jubilee, which is a time of joy for the, for the nation. Jubilee, Jubal, Jabal. These are words and names that, that talk about joy. There's enjoyment of the things that they have made. But what we're witnessing is the simultaneous rise and fall of society. Because verse 19 tells us that Lamech took how many wives? Two wives. Lamech becomes the first bigamist. Takes two wives. And what we're going to find is that polygamy and violence are, are beginning to be common and that as civilization advances, rebellion against God's word also advances. This is one reason that we need to be careful in putting too much trust in our technological advancement. We in the 21st century are really proud of our technology, of the internet and smartphones and drones and all the things that we have accomplished. And while it's amazing, the things that man has done, we can use technology to improve the quality of our lives Technology can produce pride in our hearts because we're somehow more developed than our ancestors. But the truth is, is that our technology has not made us more godly. Our ancestors didn't have smartphones and the internet, but they knew how to walk with God. They knew the Lord. The cultural skills of food production and arts and technology... These should be devoted to the highest interests of human flourishing. God gives these things to us as good gifts and we could use them for the glory of God. But the problem is that civilization's advancement also provides great potential for evil. Right? Nuclear technology is a double-edged sword. Thousands of lives today are being saved by diagnostic procedures only produced through nuclear medicine. And so the potential for good is staggering. However, in a flash, an atomic bomb can kill more people than nuclear medicine could save in a generation. I mean, they can put a microchip in you to help you find your dog or your lost wallet. But that same microchip can, guard, can guide a smart bomb through your bedroom window. Can we imagine a life without drugs, a life without painkillers, a life without antibiotics? And yet at the same time, can you imagine a life without neighborhoods under the control of cocaine and meth? While drugs have the great potential for good, they also have the great potential for evil. Same thing goes for music and the arts. Those are a wonderful gift that God has given us for self-expression. But they have great power if they are misused. 
This is why Hollywood can convey and, and, and cultivate culture and change the way that the nation thinks based on the movies that they produce. is because cinematography has great power. The stage and the screen can portray evil as being exciting and goodness as being dull and boring. This is why the Christian in every sitcom is produced, it, it, that's been produced is he's a dud, right? The Christian guy is the doofus who's not cool while you have someone else that's living ungodly and they're presented as the common sense person that's got it all together. And yet the truth is that life in the grip of sin is very tedious and unfulfilling. While a life full of God's goodness is rewarding and gratifying. This is why John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote another hymn that said, Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All of his boasted pomp and show. But solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's members know. Only the people of God know true joy and true Fulfillment, And the point here that we see in Cain's line and in his descendants is that no amount of com- no combination of agricultural abundance of arts and technology can save a society. The story of Cain's family warns us and saves us from overvaluing our culture and being so worldly that that's all we think about. People sometimes get a- accused of being so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I think a greater problem in the church is that when Christians are so worldly minded that they're of no heavenly good. The third thing that we see is that the value of marriage and life are altered by human indulgence. As man becomes wealthy and he becomes more educated and he he becomes more affluent and, and he becomes more selfish and indulgent. And it causes him to devalue two primary pillars that are foundational to human flourishing. Flourishing marriage and life itself. I want you to see what happens here. First, Lamech takes two wives. So he already devalues marriage But I want you to see his words, the song, his love song to his wives. This is a real winner, ladies. Look at verse 23. This is his love song. Ada and Zilla, you can just see him like flexing, trying to impress the girls. Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What a guy. Right? He devalues marriage and he disregards human life. Let's look at those two things. First, look at his devaluing of marriage. God's original intention for marriage had been clearly stated back in Genesis chapter 2. That a man should leave his father and his mother, should cling to his wife. One man, one woman... For a lifetime. This is God's plan for human flourishing. But Lamech's song is it's a woman's worst nightmare. He is singing a song to his wives, bragging about his violence. This is the worst outworking of the judgment that God had pronounced on Eve. You remember Genesis 3, verse 16? Part of the outworkings of the curse would be Eve, your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. Ada and Zillah are suffering the humiliation of polygamy in their marriage to a brutal, remorseless, abusive man. 
And rather than shame, Lamech wears his violence as a badge of honor. And bigamy or polygamy is going to become a huge problem even throughout the book of Genesis. It's never God's plan for man to have more than one wife. And we see issues, right? It's, it's Jacob takes two wives and Isaac has two wives and Abraham has two. I mean, every one of these men that are the 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 forefathers of, of Israel take two wives and it brings up issue after issue. It should be obvious for us in our own day to see the assault on the biblical view of marriage. And this comes in different forms from even as as what we've seen in the last few years, the legalization of so-called same-sex marriage. But even beyond that, high divorce rates, abusive spouses, adultery, sexual immorality that's celebrated and on and on. Marriage is devalued and it tends to happen in cultures that are that are affluent, that are that have money, that are educated. It just seems that those cultures tend to disregard marriage more than cultures that are less developed. And so as Christians, one way we set ourselves apart from the world is we proclaim the name of the Lord as we pursue faithful marriages that honor God through covenant love of one another. Men, your love for your wife is a witness to the, to the world about the character of God. Your marriage is a testimony of God's faithfulness to His people. It is meant to be evangelistic in its nature and it proclaims the very nature of God in the way that you love your spouse. But Lamech not only disdains marriage, he also has a disregard for human life. He says that he killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He brags to his two wives that he killed a man just for wounding him. And the secular world today has become a culture of death. Unborn babies are thrown away, slaughtered by the millions and seen as an inconvenience. But it's not just babies at birth. Our culture of death has progressed even to the end of life. Some states, even in our country, have begun to legalize physician-assisted suicide, which has become a legal way to dispose of the elderly who were considered to be a burden on society. But the big problem with Lamech is not just that he disregards marriage and he hates human life, but he does it with ruthless vengeance. Look at the last verse there, verse 24. Lamech says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The problem in all of this is that Lamech takes pride in his sin. He's just like his dad or his great-grandfather Cain. He gives this song and says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. What does he mean here? God's vengeance on Cain or or upon anyone killing Cain. Remember, God had given Cain a mark so that no one would take revenge on Cain. This was perfect justice. This was this was good for Cain. Perfect justice that was appropriate to the crime. But Lamech threatens that he's going to take vengeance 77 fold. This is an avalanche of vengeance. Jesus refers to this text In Matthew 18, when he's teaching his disciples about mercy and about forgiveness. Remember, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, when someone sins against me, how how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus is thinking back to uh, Lamech's vengeance. He says, oh no, not seven. Seventy-seven. Times seven. Seventy times seven. This is an avalanche of mercy. Rather than, than getting back with vengeance, you 
overwhelm people with grace. This is the way of the world. A world that prides itself in cultural advancement, that tries to preserve its own name, that lives for the world, that loves for the, loves the world, and does everything in its own, own way in the exclusion, to the exclusion of God. But now we see a difference in verses 25 and 26. A different way of living. The priority of the righteous is to preserve the knowledge of the Lord. Look at verse 25. We're told that Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. If you're reading this, it appears that civilization is lost. But there's this ray of hope, even in the midst of utter darkness, that Seth is born. A third son is born to Adam and Eve. While Cain's family is descending into godless rebellion, there's still some godly people on the earth. Eve gives birth to a third son. You have to imagine this was sweet for her because she lost her first two. Her oldest son had, was a murderer and had left in wandering. And her second son had been murdered. And so she says, God has given me another offspring. Literally, another seed. Eve is taking hope in God's promise that out of her, a seed would come uh, of someone who would crush the head of the serpent. And so both of her first two sons were gone and God is providing another seed of the line who a savior would come from to crush the head of the serpent. And what we see is there's a couple of things that distinguish the faithful from the wicked. The first thing has to do with her naming her son Seth. And that is that the righteous remember God's gracious provision. She names her son Seth, which means appointed. When she says God has appointed me a son, she is attributing this to God's grace. Seth's name can mean um, new beginning. It can mean foundation. Eve recognized the birth of her third son as an act of the grace of God. She had a third son, a son through whom a new seed would come. So let me ask you, have you stopped... To recognize God's grace in your own life. This is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. That he has provided a savior from us, for us from the line of Seth. To die for our sins. To be raised from the dead. And we commemorate. We remember this gracious provision of the Lord every Sunday. That's why we do it. I, I like what Eric said. The reason we, we don't get used to this is because we need the gospel every week when people say why do you take communion every week doesn't it get old i want to ask them you preach every week does preaching get old you sing every week does singing get old You pray every week does praying get old does worship get old no we do this because we need to be reminded of the gospel we need to remember and doing the lord's supper is a remembrance that god has provided us a savior to reverse the curse And so C.J. Mahaney concludes his own book on worldliness and he gives us hope. He says, do you want the world to lose its appeal to you? Then crowd out worldliness by filling your affections with the cross of Christ. This is how we overcome worldliness. When we begin to think about Christ and his substitutionary death and his resurrection and the new life that he gives us. So the righteous remember that God has provided a savior. But there's a second thing that sets us apart. Is that the righteous proclaim God's nature to the world. What happens here in verse 26? 
Seth is born. He calls his name Enosh. And it says at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. God's grace is not in vain in the life of Seth. Because we're told Seth has a son, Enosh, and people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. My Old Testament professor at Beeson Divinity School, Ken Matthews, said, Cain's firstborn and his successors pioneer cities and civilized arts, but Seth's firstborn and his successors pioneer worship. These are the pioneers of worship, a godly people who set, who are set apart, who in the midst of a culture that denies God, they continue to proclaim the name of the Lord. What does this mean? What does it mean to proclaim the name of the Lord? It it means more than just to say His name. It literally means to proclaim the nature of the Lord. When you proclaim the Lord's name, you're proclaiming who He is, His characteristics, His attributes. And so in the midst of an affluent and self-indulgent and self-gratifying society that's building cities in their own names and acts of defiance against God and His laws, what you have in the midst of utter wickedness, God sends His people, first the nation of Israel and later the church, as a kingdom of priests to worship the Lord, proclaim His name as salt to the earth and a light to the world in the midst of darkness, proclaiming that Christ has come to set us free from worldliness to worship the one true God. This is what sets people, the people of God apart. This is what makes us different. Worldly people are only seeking the good life while righteous people are seeking the godly life. This is why we emphasize domain engagement as part of our spiritual DNA. We are not to be overcome by culture, but rather to invade culture and leverage culture in order to make disciples and proclaim the name of the Lord in our own context. We're not to be, we're not to be dominated by culture. We're not to become like the world. We're to live in the world and to be witnesses in the world. As we go to our jobs, as we, as we witness to our families, we leverage culture. There's nothing wrong with technology. Nothing wrong with music and the arts. But when we become so dominated by them that that we love those things to the exclusion of God, we have been seduced by the world. So yes, own a cell phone and leverage it for God's glory. You have a job that God has given you a passion for, a gift. Use it and leverage it for the glory of God and make disciples where you are. So what do we do with this passage? I'm going to try to make this a little more practical. I'm going to give you four quick takeaways. Very quick. And the first thing is this. Learn from the line of Cain. Learn from the line of Cain. And we we can see evidence of this. And I would just give you a couple of examples. First of all, remember Lot's wife. You remember lots? Well, this is a Bible. That's one of the second shortest verse in the Bible. First shortest verse, Jesus wept. Second shortest verse, remember Lot's wife. You know why we're told to remember Lot's wife? Because Lot's wife was leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. It was God was raining down judgment, fire and brimstone. Lot is running to the mountains, and Lot's wife turns back and gives a longing gaze to go back to the way of the world. She wanted to go back, and immediately God turns her to a pillar of salt. I remember this story because my dad used to tell us growing up, he would read this story and he would tell us and then he would act like Lot's wife and he would say she turned back and looked at the city and she. And he would just freeze for like three minutes, seemed like an eternity for an eight year old. And I'm like, my daddy just turned into a 
freaked me out, y'all. And I'm like, I don't want to be like that lady. Scared me to death. But I, I remember Lot's wife. Don't continue to look back longingly at the world, but continue to press forward and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The second one, remember Demas. The servant of the Lord in the New Testament, where Paul includes him in his stories about Demas, one of my faithful servants. And when he gets to the end of his life in 2 Timothy, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having fallen in love with this present world. What a tragedy to be written on your tombstone. Started out well, but fell in love with the present world. Do not love the world or the things of the world, for the world is passing away. Second thing, first, learn from the line of Cain. Number two, apply the gospel to your soul. To combat worldliness, apply the gospel to your soul. I would tell you this morning, if you are lost, if you have wandered in here today, and you've realized that I am following the way of the world, the world has seduced me, I'm lost in my sin, I need the grace and mercy of God, I would tell you it's available. It's available to you. In Romans 10, 13, it's true that whoever does call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent. Repent of your worldliness. Repent of being so focused on this life that you have forget, you've forgotten the life to come. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you are a Christian, apply the gospel to your soul. I would just simply read Colossians 3. That if you have been raised with Christ this morning, then seek things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind this morning on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. Number three. Number one, learn from the line of Cain. Number two, apply the gospel to your soul. Number three, take an audit of your life to test if the world has a hold on you. We need to examine ourselves this morning. It's okay to enjoy culture, to use technological advances, but keep things in the right perspective. Is there anything in this world that has an unhealthy hold on your heart that should lead you to repent this morning? Has your abundance of worldly possessions led you to trust in what you have more than you trust in God? So just take an audit of your soul. And number four, proclaim the name of the Lord. We're called to be witnesses. There's two ways we proclaim the name of the Lord, I think. There's lots of ways, but for one way, through evangelism. Through gospel preaching, through teaching people who do not know Christ to tell them the gospel. Look for opportunities to share with people who do not, do not know One of the quotes I came across on Twitter wrecked me this week. Ray Comfort, who's a great evangelist, said this. Those who feed on the word without burning caloric intake through evangelism will stay in the pew of theological obesity. In other words, if you only come to church and hear sermons and receive, 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 but you're not serving in the local church, you're not getting involved, you're not doing anything to serve Christ, you're not using your gifts, you're not proclaiming the gospel, then you're just going to get fat on knowledge, but you're not going to be lean in obedience. Do you know the Lord? If you do, take the knowledge you've learned and translate it to walking with Him and proclaiming His name. Because when you start preaching the gospel to someone, what you are doing is you're talking to them about eternal things. You cannot do evangelism and have your mind on the world. You're talking to them about their soul and where they will go after this life. You're getting them to think about eternal things. And as you preach the gospel, your mind will transfer from this world to the world to come. The second thing is to proclaim the name of the Lord in worship. We're about to sing. We have a great opportunity to proclaim His name. We are a singing people. 
We are set apart from the world by our worship to sing praises to God. It is the only hope for the world, the only hope for the church, and it is the only hope for your soul this morning to call upon the name of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. So I'll conclude with this. came across this hymn that was written in the 1800s. Far let me flee from worldly sin, nor look behind, but onward press. Let the deceit that lurks within should link the soul to worldliness. Oh, where shall I flee, my God? There is no refuge but in thee. And your command is exceedingly broad. It condemns my soul's perversity. But in your grace, my troubled soul would find forgiveness freely given. And in your spirit's firm control, a power to lift me nearer heaven. Thus shall I flee from worldly sin, nor look behind but onward press, and daily fight... And daily win the rich reward of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we've come today to worship you and to proclaim your name. Father, we proclaim your name to those who do not know you. That they would repent and believe and be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise from your word. Father, for us who walk with you and who love you. Would you bring us to repentance for being seduced by the world? Father, set us free from the seductions of the world and the love of the things of the world. This world and its things are passing away, but he who loves you and does your will will abide forever. Father, save us from worldliness this morning. Father, give us boldness to proclaim the gospel out of love for our neighbor and out of love for you. To proclaim your good news to the world as witnesses in a dark world. And Father, as we worship today, let us worship in spirit and truth with great joy that you have rescued us. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. It's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.